Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. I wonder how many Christians in the world today believe the gifts of the Spirit ceased in the time of the apostles. I know there are quite a few. Many others, however, believe they are available today and make time for them in their worship services. This is one of those topics about which we don't need to guess. We have the historical record and can just look and see if generations after the apostles continued to speak in tongues, prophesy, cast out demons, or perform miraculous healing or not. In today's episode, we'll do exactly that. We'll survey what the data say about the first 500 years of Christian history with, as always, a close attention to primary sources. We'll also take an excursus to cover the Montanists, a lesser-known movement that was centered on prophecy, tongues, and asceticism. Here now is episode 500. Oh, well, thank you very much. It is exciting that we are on our 500th episode. Uh, This podcast started in 2015. It's now 2023, so we've got eight years under our belts, and we're trucking along, picking up new listeners all the time. And thanks to those of you who share this podcast with your friends and who comment on social media, making it show up again in your feeds and helping others to find this. Uh, We've got a huge archive of classes, interviews, even some sermons uh, by myself, by many others, and it's got something for everyone so that if any particular episode is not of interest to you or if it's not a subject that you're curious about, you can always just skip to the next one and skip to the next one. So anyhow, I wanted to take a moment to recognize and celebrate our 500th episode today. Thanks, everyone, for your encouragement, for your financial support, for your publicizing of this podcast. And here now, we are going to part 18 of the early church history class and look at the gifts of the Spirit in early Christianity. My plan for this session is to work our way through the first five centuries and see what Christians said about the Holy Spirit and specifically the gifts of the Spirit. So I've broken this into five sections. I want to look at the gifts of the Spirit in in general. They tend to use a term that is probably not familiar to you of charism. Charisms is just sort of like the Greek background to the word for gift in English. And then uh, we'll look at speaking in tongues and prophecy in particular. And then number three, exorcisms. Number four, healing and miracles. And then last of all, ask the question, well, what happened? So first up, gifts of the Spirit in general. Uh, Once again, I have a lot more than what I'm going to speak to you as far as data on this. And I've included many more references in your notes if you want to look anything up. If you do want to look up early church history stuff, I recommend the website ccel.org, which has lots of free access to the what's called the early church fathers. You'll be able to look up tons of stuff 
I'll leave it to you to do further research on this, but I'm just going to share with you what I think are the most impressive of the different statements made about this subject. So let's begin with Irenaeus in the second century. He says, Therefore, his real disciples have received grace from him and use it in his name for the benefit of other men as each has received the gift from him. Some really and truly drive out demons so that often those who have been cleansed of evil spirits believe and are in the church. And some have foreknowledge of the future. So you have driving out demons, you have foreknowledge of the future, and visions, and prophetic speech. And others lay their hands on the sick and make them well. As we said, even the dead have been raised and have remained us with us for many years. Why should I say more? It is impossible to tell the number of gifts which the church throughout the world received from God in the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't that just an incredible piece of information about Christianity in the second century? So this, this guy's living a century and a half after Christ. And he's saying, look, sometimes people get raised from the dead. <laughs> sometimes someone has a word of knowledge about the future. Sometimes somebody else lays hand, their hands on the sick. These things are happening, and he says that they are gifts given to the church. Tertullian, in the 3rd century, uh, probably 190s or early 200s, 3rd century is technically 200s, but he, he kind of straddles the, the line a little bit. Late 2nd century, early 3rd century. Tertullian writes, When you ascend from that most sacred font of your new birth and spread your hands for the first time in the house of your mother, together with your brethren, ask from the Father, ask from the Lord, that his own specialties of grace and distributions of gifts may be supplied to you. So Tertullian is talking about what it's like to become a new Christian. He's talking about the ritual of baptism, which he's, he uses this term, a font, which is a source of water, in case you didn't catch that. So uh, the idea is that at your baptism, you would raise your hands Spread your hands for the first time in the house of your mother. That's the first time that you've been able to go to the part of the church service that had the, uh, the prayer. And he says that upon becoming a Christian, you should ask for gifts to be given to you. Ask for a gift. Ask for a spiritual gift. And we know that's what he's talking about here, as we'll see. Tertullian was huge into the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. I have to skip over a couple of others and go on to the Apostolic Constitutions. This is a book that we have not yet done much business with. I'm trying to think if we've done any business with it. A few sessions ago, I covered early church orders. And we looked at the Didache, which is the first early church order. And we looked at the Didascalia, and we looked at the Apostolic Tradition of Hippolytus in the 3rd century. And that's kind of like where we hung out was in the 2nd and 3rd century. But this one, the Apostolic Constitutions, is another one of those church orders that describes, like, how do you become a Christian, how do churches function, things like that. And this one comes from the 4th century, probably around the year 380, but from the East. A lot of our stuff comes from the West, or comes from what they would consider the East as being, like, uh, Constantinople or Alexandria. This is way out East, like in Syria, that far East. 
we read about what their practice and their understanding of the gifts of the Spirit was in the 4th century. And the, uh, we can read, It is not therefore necessary that every one of the faithful should cast out demons, or raise the dead, or speak with tongues, but such a one only who is vouchsafed this gift, for some cause which may be to the advantage to the salvation of the unbelievers. God is pleased, it goes on to say, as a wise steward of a family to appoint miracles to be wrought, not by the power of men, but by his own will. Now we say these things that those who have received such gifts may not exalt themselves against those who have not received them. Such gifts we mean as are for the working of miracles. For otherwise there is no man who has believed in God through Christ that has not received some spiritual gift. Isn't that incredible? There is no man who has not received some spiritual gift. Now look, this is just like anything else in this class. I'm not asking you to, to agree with these people. But what I am saying is this is what they believed. Their belief was that every single person, when they become a Christian, receives some sort of spiritual gift from the Lord. They've already mentioned a number of those. They talked about casting out demons, raising the dead, speaking with tongues, you know, any of those kind of gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4 or in Romans. Let not, therefore, it goes on to say, anyone that works signs and wonders judge anyone of the faithful who is not vouchsafed the same. So you shouldn't be judging each other. For the gifts of God which are bestowed by him through Christ are various. And one man receives one gift and another another. For perhaps one has the word of wisdom and another the word of knowledge, another discerning of spirits, another foreknowledge of things to come, another the word of teaching, another long-suffering, another continence according to the law. For if it happens that there be no longer an unbeliever, all the power of signs will thenceforward be superfluous. For to be pious is from anyone's good disposition, but to work wonders is from the power of him that works them by us. Wherefore, if any among you also there be a man or a woman, and such a one obtains any gift, let him be humble, that God may be pleased with him. So the apostolic constitutions is saying different people in the church have different gifts and that you should use your gifts uh, for the good of the people, especially in reaching the unbelievers, and that you should not look down upon others who have different gifts than you have. All right, now let's get into the nitty-gritty. Everyone, anytime you talk about gifts of the Spirit, everyone always wants to focus on speaking in tongues. So I figured we'd just start with that one. Show you the answer to the question, did Christians speak in tongues before the 20th century in America when there was the Azusa Street movement? That's a big question, right? Were Christians before the Pentecostal movement of the 20th century speaking in tongues? Well, let's see. In the Didache, I'm not going to quote it, but they do talk about prophecy. Now, as you recall, the Didache is an early church order like the Apostolic Constitutions, but it comes from the first century or the early second century. And the Didache says, a prophet who speaks in the Spirit. That's, that's, how, they, that's how they talk about it, a prophet who speaks in the Spirit. And they say that if a prophet orders a meal in the Spirit, like food, they are a false prophet. If anyone should say in the Spirit, give me money, he is a false prophet. <laughs> so we have people prophesying in the first century and in the early second century. 
Uh, Irenaeus, once again, he says, We speak wisdom among those who have received the Spirit of God, who through the Spirit of God do speak in all languages. What? Did you catch that? Through the Spirit of God, speak in all languages. Irenaeus is in modern-day France. He's in Lyon in the 2nd century, writing around the year 180. Okay? And so he's saying, by the Spirit of God, they do speak in all, in all languages. Or The other word for language is tongue. As he, Paul, used himself also to speak. In like manner, we do also hear many brethren in the church who possess prophetic gifts and who through the Spirit speak all kinds of languages and bring to light for the general benefit the hidden things of men and declare the mysteries of God. That's a pretty strong statement about speaking in tongues. Tertullian talks about prayer in the Spirit, and he talks about ecstasy. Ecstasy is kind of a difficult word. We don't use it too much, unless we're talking about drugs. Uh, ecstasy in Greek, it means to really stand outside of yourself. So it's, it's a spiritual experience in which you're having a vision or you're receiving a word from the Lord and you're kind of like not in the body or you're not fully conscious or whatever. And so Tertullian says that this is something that happens regularly in his church. And he mentions the interpretation of tongues and that this is standard operating procedure in the church he goes to. Tertullian, uh, we haven't talked much about him. We're going to talk a lot about him uh, in this session. Tertullian, just so you know a little bit about him, he is from Carthage. Carthage is a North African city west of Alexandria and a very important city, very sophisticated, intelligent people there, very wealthy people there, like any big city. And uh, Tertullian comes from that upper class, probably was a lawyer, somewhat contested, but probably had been trained in law. He could write. You know, he was good with the pen. He was a rhetorician. And Tertullian became a Christian. He wasn't always a Christian. And uh, as we'll see, he really did a lot for this whole area of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he talks about a sister in his church. He said she had experiences in the Spirit by ecstatic vision. That's his phrase. Experience in the Spirit by ecstatic vision. All right, so let me just explain this to you. So this, this sister in Tertullian's church Sometime during the church service, she would have these visions. Okay, it's not clear exactly what that means. But then, after everyone was dismissed from the church service, she would come forward to some others who were there, presumably the leaders, and relate to them her vision, and they would examine it to see if it's true, see if it's biblical, presumably. Uh, they would probe it, is the word he uses. And so he's like, this is just normal... In thing that happens in church, like the Spirit's moving. I don't know, it's pretty cool. Hilary of Poitiers, uh, I haven't really talked about him yet. Hilary as a guy, yes, uh, not as a girl. Hilary uh, was very involved in arguing for the Trinity in the fourth century. That's not really our focus right now. Uh, instead, I want to read this quote to you from his book. His, his book is actually called On the Trinity, but he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit here. He says, for God hath set same in the church, first apostles, in whom is the word of wisdom, secondly prophets, in whom is the gift of knowledge, thirdly teachers, in whom is the doctrine of faith, next mighty works, among which are the healing of diseases, the power to help governments by the prophets, and gifts of either speaking or interpreting diverse kinds of tongues. 
Clearly, these are the church's agents of ministry and work of whom the body of Christ consists, and God has ordained them. So look, he's not arguing for it. He's just like stating matter-of-factly, these are the gifts that God has given to the church. God ordained them, and they are in the church. Simple as that. And he does specifically mention speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues. And he's in the 4th century. He's later. He's not some early guy like Irenaeus in the 2nd century where it's like kind of like wild and crazy still. Like he's in the 4th century and still he can mention these things in a matter-of-fact way. Now we need to take an excursus. An excursus is where we go down a side path for a little while, but then we'll come back, okay? So we're going to go down a side path and look at the Montanists. Montanists were very significant. Montanus is the name of a guy, Montanus. Not somebody that most people have heard of, the Montanists. Not to be confused with the monastics, which is spelled totally differently. But the Montanists are followers of Montanus, who lived in the year 165 and began prophesying about that year. He had an ecstatic experience and it's described for us by Apollinarius of Hierapolis. He says, At the village of Artabao in Phrygian Mysia, a recent convert named Montanus fell into a trance. He began raving, chattering, and speaking nonsense, prophesying. All right, now let me just say a word about this. <laughs> this is a hostile witness. Everything we know about Montanus and his followers is from hostile witnesses because his group didn't win the day and get to write the history, okay? So you have to read this critically. I'm sure he wasn't raving and chattering. Like, he was probably speaking in tongues. But this is their description of it from somebody who doesn't believe that Montanus was legitimate. But that's a pretty interesting explanation, right? So there's this guy in the second century, and he's raving, chattering, and speaking nonsense, prophesying. Like, that's, that's kind of like what speaking in tongues sounds like. I mean, if you're going to be an outsider looking in. Another source said that Montanus spoke in ecstasy. And of the people that were there when this originally happened, some people thought he was possessed by a demon. Other people thought he was influenced by the Holy Spirit. So there were people on both sides. And Montanus said, Behold, man is like a lyre, sort of like the ancient guitar, and I fly to him like a plectrum. Man sleeps and I stay awake. Behold, the Lord is the one who throws human hearts into ecstasy and gives a heart to men. Can you imagine him saying that? You'd be like, are you saying that, Montanus? Or is that the Spirit saying that? And then another place he says, I am the Lord God, the Almighty, who abide in man. That's what it sounds like when somebody prophesies. Right? The person is not actually claiming to be God. It's, they're speaking as if they're God. Same thing you see with Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord, I, da-da-da-da-da, I, da-da-da-da, me, da-da-da. Right? Here's another statement of Montanus. Neither angel nor envoy, but I, the Lord God, the Father, have come. So these are just little excerpts we get from his enemies who preserved it in order to argue against him. Okay, so, but I've just taken them out so you can see the sorts of things that he was saying. Over time, two other leaders joined Montanus in the movement, both women. One, Maximilla, and the other, Priscilla. 
and they were both considered prophetesses. Apollinarius puts it in his gracious way. He says, they babbled madly, abnormally, and grotesquely, like Montanus. Such an uncharitable description of the gifts of the Spirit. But um, yeah, so these ladies started prophesying. As a movement, they emphasized the importance of the Holy Spirit. So uh, one of the things they do is they really focus on the Last Supper discourse where Jesus called the Holy Spirit the paraclete, which in most of our translations is, is uh, helper or something like that. In the Old English, it was comforter, right? It's the word paraclete in the Greek. So if you're part of this movement, which they call the new prophecy, you will call the Spirit the paraclete. And that's like how people would recognize that you're part of the new prophecy movement, if that makes sense. They settled in Papuza, which is in Phrygia, and they called Papuza the New Jerusalem. Phrygia is in modern-day Turkey, kind of in the middle. Of course, Turkey is north of Israel and just east of Constantinople. So they get called the Phrygians, the Cataphrygians, and later on the Montanists, but they called themselves the New Prophecy. This reminds me of some movements I've seen in Christianity in the 21st century, where they say there's a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. doesn't seem that different to me. This movement, the New Prophecy movement, spread outside of Phrygia all throughout the region of what we call today Turkey, and also to Africa, and also to Gaul, which is modern-day France. So as far as their beliefs go, they were basically in agreement with all the typical mainstream Christian beliefs. But they were a little bit more ascetic. They were a little more strict. So they really got into fasting. And they really emphasized celibacy. But like a lot of Christians were doing that, so that's not that weird at that time. However, they disagreed on remarriage. They made a big point of this. They said you should never get remarried no matter what. Don't care if your spouse died. Never get remarried if you want to join our church. So that was one of their distinctives. And then the other thing they did was they disagreed on sin after baptism. They said, Hermas, you remember Hermas? I told you about the Shepherd of Hermas, this early book in the Apostolic Father session. Hermas asked the question, can you sin after baptism? And uh, the, the angel from heaven says to him, yes, but only once and for a limited time. The mainstream church, if I can put it that way, the typical church, if you did a big sin, you would have to do penance, and you would be punished in a sense. You'd be told to stand in the back, and then you have to leave when the, when the new people leave. You couldn't stay for communion. And they would kind of punish you for a while, and then after so long, you, you could come back into the service. Not with the new prophecy. They were strict. You want to commit adultery? You want to sacrifice to the gods? You want to commit some sin? You want to kill someone? Whatever the sin is, you're never allowed back, no matter what. So they were strict. They were also well-organized and funded. Their critics talk about how they have money, (laughs) which is kind of interesting. Joseph Lynch says about them, Some prophets and prophetesses clashed with the emerging authority of bishops when they claimed to bypass their authority and speak directly from the Spirit. And I think this gets at one of the main issues with church leaders, of which I am one as a pastor, and gifts of the Spirit. A lot of times we church leaders don't like gifts of the Spirit because they're messy. 
And they also challenge our authority. This is something that we see with the New Prophecy Movement, where the bishops of the region of Asia Minor said, you know what, we see it's getting weird over there in Phrygia. We need to make a move on this. And they, they decided, we're going to excommunicate all of you. None of you are allowed, none of your churches are allowed to be considered with us anymore. And uh, basically they just excluded them. And that could be because they felt their authority was, was questioned. I mean, think about it for a second. If somebody's claiming to speak for God, that the Holy Spirit is working in them to give a prophecy, that is threatening to leadership. So it was in the days of John the Baptist when he confronted the leader and he got executed for it. So it was in the days of Jeremiah when he confronted King Zedekiah and he got thrown in a pit. It does threaten the authority, but it's part of like the checks and balances, I think, to some degree. The uh, other thing about the New Prophecy Movement is that it favored or empowered, I should say, women to a great degree. Women had much more significant roles. Later on, after Montanus and Maximilla and Priscilla, there's another leader called Quintilla, uh, and in her time, they actually start ordaining women bishops and other clergy. And th- we also have little information about them, how they talked about Miriam as a prophetess. They said, oh, Miriam was a prophetess. You know who Miriam was? The, the sister of Moses? They said, oh, yeah, she was a prophetess. And then they say, well, Philip's four daughters, Philip's four virgin daughters in the book of Acts, they prophesied. They were women and they prophesied. And they quoted the verse, in Christ Jesus there is neither male nor female. We should be allowed to prophesy too. And then they won a big fish. They got Tertullian of Carthage, the theologian, the founder of Latin theology, to join their movement. And so Tertullian, who is... Of probably the most influential theologian of the third century, at least in Latin, not in, not in Greek, but in Latin. He, I mean, he's the guy that literally invented the word Trinity in Latin. The word Trinitas, that's his word. Of course, he was a subordinationist, which is hysterical. He did not believe they were all co-equal, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the story for another day. But Tertullian is the, like just a top-shelf guy, and he joins the New Prophecy Movement, and he defends them. In fact, his writings survive. We have like hundreds of pages of Tertullian. So in 208, he joined their movement and he, he writes a little bit before that. He says, Peter said, let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias, Elijah. Do, do you remember that? That's the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter's kind of like overwhelmed. He's having this what? visionary experience, this ecstatic, sort of like weird thing that's happening, glowing bodies. Jesus is glowing, literally. Uh, He hears a voice, right? This is the place you go. And uh, Tertullian says, how knew he not? Was his ignorance the result of simple error? Or was Peter, on the principle which we maintain in the cause of the new prophecy, that to grace ecstasy, or rapture is incident. Uh, so the question is, does, does Peter just not know what he's talking about? He's like just kind of like babbling like an idiot? Or was he in a state of ecstasy and rapture? Was, was, was he like not fully conscious, just like us in the New Prophecy Movement when we do our prophecy? See what he's doing there? 
For when a man is wrapped in the Spirit, especially when he beholds the glory of God, or when God speaks through him, he necessarily loses his sensation because he is overshadowed with the power of God, a point concerning which there is a question between us and the carnally minded. So this is another hysterical little moment here. So you us and the carnally minded here. He's saying like, well, there's, and this is sort of a new prophecy teaching. It's like, you've got us who are like full of the spirits and then you have like regular Christians, Right? And so he, he says, well, this is a point of disagreement between us, new prophecy people, and then the carnal Christians, the fleshly Christians. The uh, Montanists were eventually excommunicated, like I mentioned, and then persecuted. William Taberny says, Constantine ordered the burning of all Montanist books. Later emperors enacted legislation that deprived Montanists of property and forced them to join mainstream Christianity, be exiled, or in some cases, be put to death. Justinian, in the 6th century, burned down Montanist churches. One of Justinian's agents even burned the bones of Montanus, Maximilla, and Priscilla, and also confiscated the church building that contained the shrine, as well as other Montanist buildings at Papuza. If you want to know more about the Montanist movement, I just shared the most basic, minimal facts. You can read this book called Prophets and Gravestones, An Imaginative History of Montanists and Other Early Christians by William Taberny, which I think will be a very helpful book to you if you're curious about researching this. Now, I want to go on record as saying I'm not taking a position on the Montanists. I don't know if they were a move of God. I don't know if it was influenced by a demon. I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't have enough information to judge them at this point. All I know is that they represent a stream of Christians in the second century onwards. These guys last for four centuries until the time of Justinian. So starting out like in the 160s and going all the way up to 550. It's an incredible, <laughs> uh, what we would call today, denomination of Christianity that did these things. All right, end of excursus on the Montanists. Let's get back and talk about exorcisms. Exorcisms, as you know, is casting out a spirit. In our time today, people typically use the phrase deliverance to refer to driving out a demon from someone. Uh, we have this really interesting statement by Justin where he's talking to his Jewish friend, Trifo, and he says, Every demon is vanquished and subdued when exercised in the name of this true Son of God. But... If you, you the Jewish people, attempt to exercise them in the name of any man born among you, whether kings, just men, prophets, or patriarchs, not one of the demons will be subdued. So he's bragging about Jesus, right? He's having this conversation with this Jew, and he's saying to him, look, every demon, every unqualified, all demon, vanquished and subdued when exercised in the name of this true Son of God. It's like, look, Jesus is awesome because he, his name has power over the demons. But like, you could use whatever name you want of whoever was born. You want to use uh, in the name of King Solomon, come out of him. It's not going to work. Not one of the demons will be subdued. Whereas if any man among you should exercise them in the name of the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, they will perhaps become subdued. So Justin admits that if you just like 
cast out a demon. You're not a Christian, you're a Jew. You cast out a demon just in the name of God. It's like, it might work. <laughs> but some of your exorcists, as I have already noted, adjure the demons by employing the magical art of the Gentiles using fumigations and amulets. Just a quick word about this. So in the ancient world, believing in demons was normal. It was not controversial. It was not considered weird. Everybody believed in demons. Even the higher level gods were considered to be limited spirits that were mostly evil or maybe neutral. <laughs> okay? But like they weren't considered to be like morally good necessarily. Uh, at least not in the Greco Roman world. Okay? So the Jews sort of became famous as exorcists, and they've really got into it. And they, they, they would use these different names and these different, like, phrases. And we have, like, lots of data about Jewish exorcisms. And here it talks about fumigations and amulets. These amulets survive to today. Like, these are archaeological items that, that were, were discovered that would ward off spirits. And that was the thinking behind it. And Justin is here saying, like, yo, you guys, if you try to use, like, the name of some famous Jewish person, it's not going to work. If you use the name of God, it might work. But like some of you are, are doing like fumigations and ambulance like the Gentiles. Like what in the world are you doing? You know, he's, he's kind of like bragging about how the name of Jesus is so good at casting out demons. So that's one piece of evidence there. Tertullian in the uh, late 2nd century basically equates the gods of the peoples with the evil spirits. Okay, so you have the gods of the Romans, uh, so like Jupiter, Mars, Venus. These are the names of their gods. And so Tertullian is saying, well, those are demons. Those are like these, what we in the Bible are going to call demons. Those are what those are. So I thought that was an interesting little equivocation there. Origen talks about the Pythian priestess. Look, this was normal stuff in the ancient world. You could go to a temple and you could get a word from the Lord. Not exactly our Lord, but uh, some Lord. Origen writes, If the Pythian priestess is out of her senses and has not control of her faculties when she prophesies, what sort of spirit must we think it which poured darkness upon her mind and rational thinking? Its character must be like that of the race of demons which many Christians drive out of people who suffer from them without any curious magical art or sorcerer's device but with prayer alone and very simple adjurations and formulas such as the simplest person could use. For generally speaking, it is uneducated people who do this kind of work. Is this a hysterical <laughs> description of exorcisms in the third century? I mean, here's Origen, pretty much the smartest guy in the room, whatever room he's in, and he's just like the Pythian priestess. She does speak and she has prophecies, but... Its character must be like that, the race of demons, which we drive out of people. The most impressive spiritual power that, are, that your priests, your, your pagan priests have, are like someone that we Christians, even our simplest people, could just cast right out of somebody. Like he's saying Christianity is better. That's what he's doing here. And that's from his book Against Celsus, where he's arguing with this guy Celsus, who was like actually had been dead for like 75 years. But he's arguing in print so that others would be able to benefit from it. In the apostolic tradition of the third century, I mentioned this to you before. 
If somebody comes to visit the church, they were to be uh, received in, in private first, and somebody would discern if that person had demonic influence because the assumption was demons are in the culture, demons are in the society. You people are worshiping demons. You're offering sacrifice to demons. Now you want to come to church. So we need to discern the spirit, cast out the demon, then you can come in and sit and listen. That's what the, the apostolic tradition says in the third century. Then it says when you go to baptize somebody, you, you cast the demon out. The bishop casts the demon out. Uh, so this is something that Christians believed in. It wasn't debated. It wasn't controversial. It was just sort of like typical that they knew in the name of Christ, demons had to go and that this was standard operating procedures, basically how I would, how I would describe what they were doing. All right, on to the next one here, healing and miracles. Healing and miracles. Back to our friend Irenaeus, he says, Even less have they, the Gnostics, ever raised a dead man as the Lord did, and the apostles by prayer, and in our brotherhood very often because of need. When the whole local church asked with fasting and much prayer, the Spirit returned to the dead man, and the man was given to the prayers of the saints. So Irenaeus, as I mentioned before, talks about raising of the dead as being something that happens in the second century in his church context. Origin of Alexandria also talks about it. Cyprian talks about it also in the third century. And our church orders, the apostolic tradition of the third century and the apostolic constitutions of the fourth century, we read, if somebody appears to have received the gift of healing or revelation, the facts of the matter will reveal whether he has spoken the truth. So that's kind of taking a, I want to say skeptical, but like a wait-and-see approach. Like, all right, this person says they have the gift of healing, so let's find a sick person. You <laughs> heal the sick person, and then that will reveal if you have spoken the truth. Or in the 4th century, we read, For he who has received the gift of healing is declared by revelation from God, the grace which is in him being manifest to all. Like, look, guys, if somebody has the gift of healing and they're healing people, it should be obvious. It should be manifest. You should have a track record, you know, individuals that can testify. But they're not against it. There, there's no like saying like, oh, well, they, these things are probably gone, so we shouldn't even have that in the church. No, they're totally open to it, but they're just like, they want to see the, the evidence. So then the question comes to us, what happened? If early Christians in the first five centuries had speaking in tongues, if they had prophecy, if they had visions and dreams and healing and miracles. What happened? What, why did these things disappear over time? Let me give you the short answer. I don't know. I know that it did happen, but I don't know why it happened. I have three main theories, though. Theory number one is that because the Montanists went nutso with prophecy and, and, and speaking in tongues, the rest of Christianity said, we don't want to have anything to do with that, and they shut it down. That's one theory. Uh, another theory articulated by Sam Storms is, by the late 4th century, the gifts of the Spirit were increasingly found among ascetics and those involved in monastic movements. The various compromises and accommodations to the wider culture that infiltrated the church subsequent to the formal legalization of Christianity under Constantine 
drove many of the more spiritually minded leaders into the desert. This is the idea that I call the Constantinian shift. If you remember that term that I used, it's the idea that as Constantine favored Christianity and then over time Christianity became ascendant in the society, the Roman Empire, so many people joined the church that they couldn't have like their strict rules to make sure that everyone was a real believer and that it basically watered down Christianity. And then those Christians who said, oh, I really want to be on fire for the Lord, they actually left the church and went to the desert and stayed in the monastery. And so you do find more evidence of signs and miracles among the monks and, and the, the desert fathers and mothers than you find in the mainstream church after the 4th century. So Sam Storms is pointing to that as a potential explanation of what happened. And then there's always the, the sort of classic rigidity over time. Tradition. Over time, this is how we do things. And uh, rigidity of church services and authority solely among bishops and councils, perhaps that's what quenched the Spirit. You know, if you don't have time for the Holy Spirit to be expressed in your meeting, guess what? People are not going to express it. <laughs> John Chrysostom writes in the 4th century, uh, he writes a commentary on 1 Corinthians 12. And that's really where you want to go if you want to find out what somebody believes about the gifts of the Spirit. And John Chrysostom, we're going to talk about him later. He's a big deal. In fact, his last name, it's not really a last name, but uh, his, his name Chrysostom means golden mouth. We have dozens of his sermons that have survived to this day. Super popular preacher, very well known. And he's preaching right through the book of 1 Corinthians. He gets to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And he says about the chapter, This whole place is very obscure. But the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to and by their cessation. Being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place. And why do they not happen now? Why look now? The cause, too, of the obscurity hath produced us again another question. Namely, why did they ha then happen? Now do so no more. This, however, let us defer to another time. But for the present, let us state what things were occurring then. Well, what did happen then? Whoever was baptized, he straightway spake with tongues, and not with tongues only, but many also prophesied, and some also performed many other wonderful works." It's an interesting take. So John Chrysostom is saying, I recognize what happened then. When, in those days, when somebody became a Christian, they would speak in tongues or they would prophesy or there would be healing. But that doesn't happen now. And he asks the question, well, why did it happen then, but it doesn't happen now? And I love his answer. He says, let us defer to another time. Like, we'll, we'll talk about that later. I feel like I say that a lot to my kids. Like, we'll, we'll talk about that later. You know, right now you clean your room or you do the dishes. <laughs> and so uh, it's, it's really interesting to think that in the 4th century, kind of sad in my opinion, to think that in the 4th century these gifts of the Spirit were no longer considered normal. Whereas like earlier people like Justin and Irenaeus or even Novation or Hilary of Poitiers, they could talk about the gifts of the Spirit as normal as part of the church's regular life and standard operating procedure. Augustine writes, in the earliest times, the Holy Ghost fell upon them that believed. And Augustine's in the 5th century. And they spake with tongues. 
which they had not learned as the Spirit gave them utterance. So he admits early on, yeah, people spoke in tongues. These were signs adapted to their time, to the time. So the idea is that in those days they spoke in tongues, but that was something that was for that time period. For there behooved to be that betokening of the Holy Spirit in all tongues to show that the gospel of God was to run through all tongues over the whole earth. That thing was done for a betokening, and it passed away. So that's the idea that the gifts of the Spirit have passed away. In the laying on of hands now that persons may receive the Holy Ghost, do we look that they should speak with tongues? Or when we laid the hand on these infants, did each one of you look to see whether they would speak with tongues? And when he saw they did not speak with tongues, was any of you so wrong-minded as to say, these have not received the Holy Ghost? For had they received, they would speak with tongues, as was the case in those times. So you can see what Augustine is saying here in the 5th century. He's like, duh, nobody speaks in tongues anymore. That's not normal. That's something they did in the old days, but it's passed away now. So, But at the same time, it's not completely gone because we have incidents that are mentioned after the time of Augustine in the Middle Ages of prophetic stuff, healings, and even tongues. So I'm not disputing that what he says is his experience, but I'm saying I don't think that this is something that's limited to the time of the apostles because we can document it as occurring a lot after the time of the apostles as well. Let's review. Christians throughout the first five centuries believed that gifts or charisms of the Spirit were available to Christians. We have several reports of speaking in tongues as well as prophecy from the Didache, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Hilary. In the second century, Montanus began a movement called the New Prophecy that emphasized the gifts of the Spirit. New prophecy leaders included female prophets such as Maximilla and Priscilla, as well as a male theologian named Tertullian. Though excommunicated by many churches and persecuted by the government from Constantine onward, the new prophecy movement endured for four centuries. Christians associated demons with the gods the pagans worshipped and confidently believed that they had the power to drive them out. Casting out demons was standard operating procedure in churches both for first-time visitors and at baptisms. Miraculous healing, including raising the dead, was well known to early Christians. Church orders said someone with the gift of healing would be obvious to all in the church. Possibly due to a reaction against the Montanists, the Constantinian shift, or the rigidifying of church services, the gifts disappeared. I typed in that word rigidifying. I'm like totally expecting my word processor to flag it as misspelled because I thought it was a made-up word because I just made it up. And it was, it was a real word. So point for Sean. By the 4th century, John Chrysostom says speaking in tongues and prophecy had ceased. By the 5th century, Augustine thought it's silly to expect tongues. All right, so that's our survey on gifts of the Spirit. Essentially, they were there. And then they diminish with time. As far as the theology and how you work that out, that's your business to figure out. Uh, next time, we'll return to considering the Byzantine Empire. We've looked at the Roman Empire sort of like as it relates to Christianity. But I have to kind of take a step back and sort of cover the politics of what happened from Constantine in the 4th century 
up till Justinian in the 6th century so that you, you understand like what was going on in the world in the second half of our 500-year period of consideration as we continue through our journey of early church history together. Well, that brings this episode to a close. What do you think? Come on over to restitudio.org and leave your feedback on episode 500. The Gifts of the Spirit in Early Christianity would love to hear your thoughts and questions. On our last episode, The Kingdom of God in Early Christianity, Brandon wrote in on Facebook. He said, Really interesting survey of the kingdom believers and kingdom deniers of the first five centuries. I'm curious, Sean, about what the kingdom believers thought about the time after the millennial period. Did they look at the kingdom as being bookended or perpetual? If they thought it was a literal thousand years, what next? I grew up being taught that the return of Christ would kick off a thousand-year earthly reign with the saints, but that it would end and eternity after would be a spiritual heavenly existence in contrast to material earthly existence. I'm inclined to disagree with that as an adult and lean toward an unending physical existence within God's creation that would be adjusted to remove the soul-making elements we endure currently and be oriented to pure joy for those who have conquered and earned entry into eternal life. What did the fathers think about that? What do you think? Thanks for that question. I think that's not a view I honestly have heard before. So I guess I would want to put the burden of proof on somebody that is teaching that view and see what are their reasons for believing that. Is there some sort of crypto-gnosticism lurking under the surface here, this sort of inner sense that maybe this physical realm is not ultimately good, that it is ultimately second best or uh, in some way tainted, or, or that physicality is in some way inferior to, I don't know, what the Borg-like existence of Star Trek, uh, where everyone shares consciousness I'm not really sure what is lying under the surface or if there's a specific scriptural text that people are pointing to to say, oh, no, we're we're going off world for eternity once we satisfy this 1,000-year requirement. Uh, So I I guess I would want to know a little bit more about that. As far as the early Christian record goes, I read a bunch of the different sources in our last episode in the beginning including uh, the Didache, which is kind of vague. It just talks about how we're going to be gathered together into his kingdom. Barnabas, who talks about the age to come. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, who talks about inheriting the kingdom. Polycarp mentions reigning together with him. Uh, Hermas is really the first one that gets into this 1,000 years business. Uh, although I don't think I actually quoted that part of Hermas, or maybe that was Barnabas, excuse me. No, I think that was Barnabas. One of these guys does lay out this theory that the world is going to go for 6,000 years, and then after that, there will be 1,000 years, and that's like the end of the week, if you will. It's not a view you see too much. You, you do see it a few places. The typical way I'd say they're talking about it is not in a millennial sense at all. They're just talking about the kingdom in a general sense. I would say that when the millennium does show up, certainly with uh, Justin and Irenaeus in the second half of the second century, that they do seem to hold to the idea that the millennial is literal, that it does last a full thousand years, that it starts at the coming of Christ, and then it involves reigning on the earth. 
I wonder if Irenaeus might be able to give you an answer to your question, though, Brandon. I would I would recommend taking a look at Book Five of Against Heresies. Uh, that's his major surviving work, and Book Five really goes into a lot of his eschatology, and it's very long, and it covers much more than what I was able to quote in the episode. So, uh, and it's freely available online at ccel.org. I think it's uh, Volume One of the Anti-Nicene Fathers. So you'll be able to take a look at that. He's a good place to look because he wrote so much about it. And he's really somewhat consciously writing against the Gnostic view. As time rolls on, we do get uh, the kingdom deniers really ridiculing and making fun of the millennium idea, especially Origen, this fellow that Eusebius quotes names Dionysius, uh, you've got uh, Augustine and Jerome. So those are, those are like the main kingdom deniers, if I can put it that way, who are going to fight against the millennium. And it seems like the, the tactic is to almost like uh, to reduce the whole kingdom of God concept to just a thousand years and then to just find a way to attack that. And uh, it's interesting that this whole subject is is coming up because... Uh, in my own work on the kingdom, I've actually tried to avoid talking about the millennium whenever possible, <laughs> because to me it's like, well, shoot, there's only one chapter in the Bible that talks about this. I have my theories about how all that fits into Isaiah 65 and other places in the Bible that seem to talk about a transitionary age where you have the kingdom arrive, but you still have people dying and you still have uh, kind of a mix, a transition period. I've got my own theory about that, as do most premillennialists. But uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to major on those speculations. What I want to major on is what's clear in Scripture: "Blessed are the meek; they will inherit the earth." Uh, I, I guess I would argue in this case, uh, in response to Brandon, that if we're off in heaven or some other non-physical realm, then uh, how is it? How 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 is that fulfilled? Or how about? Isaiah 45 that says that uh, God made the world to be inhabited. If the world ends up destroyed or depopulated, then God's plans are, in a sense, frustrated. Uh, So I I think there's enough scripture that talks about the earth and physicality being good that we can affirm an eternal physical existence. And really, I think resurrection is God's commitment to that. I would say even the resurrection of Jesus himself really shows you that God is committed to corporeality and to physical existence. Now, that doesn't mean that our resurrected bodies won't have certain upgrades that might make uh, some sci-fi fantasies of ours a reality. I don't know. I'm not going to take a position on that. But I I did notice that, and I haven't uh, had a chance to listen to Bill Schlegel's podcast yet. Uh, Those of you who know Bill Schlegel, he's been a guest on this show in the past and he's, his podcast is called The One God Report. He's had Dustin Smith on for three episodes talking about amillennialism. And uh, even though amillennialism is most typically paired in antiquity with the idea of existing in heaven instead of on the earth, uh, Smith's point of view on it is that there is no millennium but uh, there is going to be a kingdom when Jesus comes back. And, you know, from my from where I sit, I think that's just fine. That's that's gospel. That's going to be good. I don't know how he gets people to magically and instantaneously shift from this present evil age to 
the age to come, I guess in his view, and again, I need to listen to it to see what he says, but I guess in his view, he's thinking that everyone is going to be instantaneously judged, and certainly God would be capable of doing something like that, but it just doesn't seem to be his pattern in Scripture. That's, I guess, would be my point about it. And a, a thousand years or a long time, how, you know, however you want to look at that number in Revelation 20, it does kind of make sense as a transitionary period between the current systems, the current technologies, the current societies in our world, and the final kingdom when finally God himself comes down to be with us in a new and exciting way that's not available today. So there's a lot to think about there, but I will say this, that those early Christians that do touch on the millennium do sound premillennial, and there's a good book on this if you're curious book was called A Case for Historic Premillennialism by Craig Blomberg and Sungwook Chung. Uh, This book is very helpful. I highly recommend it. I use it in research for my master's thesis and for my forthcoming book, by the way. Uh, I'm just uh, in negotiations with Wiffenstock to publish my book called Kingdom Journey. So stay tuned for that. I know I've mentioned it a couple times in the past, but uh, finally got a contract with them and uh, I'll probably sign that in the near future. I might have to make a couple of adjustments, but uh, anyhow, A Case for Historic Premillennialism, a fascinating book, really does show the historical record is premillennial, at least up until the time of Augustine. Uh, who has this incredible shift. Probably Ambrose has something to do with that, too. And, you know, these uh, these earlier authors that I covered in our last episode, like Eusebius and Origen, in reformatting the idea of the eschaton to be spiritual instead of physical. Of course, I think ultimately there is no conflict between spiritual and physical. I think the physical is spiritual. Uh, so I don't, I'm just going to d- reject the whole dichotomy. I don't, I don't, I'm not a Cartesian fellow myself. Anyhow, take a look at that book if you're interested in it. And, you know, I think the Amils do need to answer the question, how in the world is it that nobody believed this for the first 300 years of Christian history? And, and if they did, then, then please forgive me. I'm just not aware of those quotations. Uh, when it comes to doing research on early church history, the problem is that we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pages of text to read, and nobody can read it all. At least I don't know anyone that's ever read all of it. Uh, maybe David Brousseau did uh, to produce his Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs, and uh, we're all benefiting from that work. Well, that's enough for today. Stay tuned for next week, where we look at the Aryan kingdoms from Ulphilus to Clovis. And a little beyond Clovis as well, if I'm going to be honest. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see kind of returning back to Christology in the Roman Empire and seeing like, okay, so like after Diocletian did what he did, how did the Arians cope with that? And the answer is they left and they evangelized and they spread among the quote-unquote barbarians. So uh, stay tuned for that for next week. Thanks everyone for tuning in. And uh, if you'd like to support Restitutio financially, you can do that at our website, restitutio.org. I'll catch you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.